This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, and welcome to the latest Money and Markets podcast, where we can promise that no one's going to resign midway through, but also we'll bring you the latest personal finance and investing news from the past week. Joining me today is Danny Hewson. Hi, Laura. You didn't say that there was no opportunity to resign midway through. (laughs) Should have stipulated that. (laughs) All right, we'll plough on. Um, There's so much to cover this week, uh, from various warnings from the Bank of England to the latest news and rows from supermarkets. And we've also got a preview of what the new Chancellor could announce in his economic update next week, as well as the latest figures on the cost of living debt crunch. And we've got some positive news, don't worry, from food delivery companies Just Eat and Grubhub and an update on the US-China tariff war. And in our fund manager interview this week, we're speaking to Laura Foll on the fate of banks in the current cost of living crunch. But as always, let's look at markets first. So they've not reacted too well to the latest political turmoil, which is um, unfolding as we record this. But we've seen the pound slump and on top of that, The Bank of England has come out with some various warnings this week. So, Danny, tell us more. Yeah, I mean, I think um, that, to be honest with you, the markets have been less concerned with what's going on uh, in terms of of politics and the resignations that you were talking about than they have been on um, the Bank of England's warning um, because their financial stability report, which came out Yesterday, we're recording this uh, Wednesday lunchtime. It made for some pretty uncomfortable reading, and they sent a shiver through uh, UK markets. Um, markets have recovered a little bit today, which suggests that you know that they're not really concerned with all the political shenanigans, um, but they are incredibly concerned with growth, and uh, they are worried about how fit the UK economy is to deal with the downturn that does seem to be heading our way. Now, one thing that the Bank of England uh, report said yesterday is that they feel that banks are fit and ready to deal with whatever happens. And it also said that it's households and small businesses which are really expected to be hammered by the continued pressure of rising prices eating into budgets. But the committee does believe that most will be able to limp on despite inflation headed into double figures by the end of the year. But of course, Laura, you know, it's all about timing, isn't it? You know, how long might any downturn last? How damaged will households and and small businesses in particular be by this poisonous mix of high inflation and stagnant growth? You know, if it lingers like a bad smell, there's a lot of homeowners that are sort of dodging the the worst of the interest rate hikes because they're on fixed rate mortgage deal. Many of those, though, are expected to come to an end over the next year or so, which just adds an extra cost. And we've also got another thing which um, is really troubling markets at the moment, and that is the pound. It's fallen to a two-year low against the dollar. Now, this really does reflect traders' increasing concerns about recession around the world as energy prices continue to soar. And 
you know, sterling really sort of bearing the brunt of things at the moment because markets are particularly worried about future UK economic growth. So we saw um, sterling on, on Tuesday night fall below $1.19 for the first time since March 2020 when the first COVID lockdown was brought in. It is worth saying that um, the euro is also falling against the dollar as well. A lot of that is because, you know, the dollar is often seen as a, a safe haven currency. So a lot of people are putting money into the dollar at the moment. But when you've got a weak pound, it means that imports like food become more expensive. It pushes up the price of petrol at the pump. It means holidaymakers get less for their money when they're buying abroad. But, you know, particularly on the FTSE 100, we know we've got a lot of big companies which sell abroad. And it does mean that UK products and services sold abroad can become more attractively priced for foreign customers. But, you know, there's a real sense uh, on uh, markets among traders at the moment that there's real issues with growth, particularly in terms of, you know, finding enough people to be able to power the economic engine because there just aren't enough people to fill the jobs at the moment. And um, while, while we're talking about, you know, these economic fears, and, and I was saying that, you know, for, for a lot of households, um, things are expected to get really tight. You've had um, a little tidbit of data that's come out this week looking at how people are handling debt in the current cost of living crisis. Yeah, so this is latest figures from the FCA, the regulator, and it's more looking into people's attitudes to debt and also seeking help when they get in debt. And what it really highlights is that there's still a lot of shame around people having debt and financial difficulty and that actually deters them from seeking help from their lender or flagging to their lender that they're having issues. So the data showed that two-fifths of people ignored potential help from their lenders because they just felt ashamed about the debt that they were in. And some people are leaving it six months or more by which time presumably they're in much worse financial situation before they seek help. Um, and so I just thought it's interesting that even though we talk a lot about the fact that people are going to be struggling, more people are taking on debt, and, and we've seen that in some of the figures, um, actually there's still a lot of shame and embarrassment about debt, which is preventing people from getting help earlier on. And we all know that um, if you're struggling to make ends meet, you're taking on debt and then you're missing payments on that debt, the sooner that you can tackle that, flag that to a lender, get the help and support that's out there, the better it's going to be for you financially. Um, so I think it's about the case of kind of flagging to people that there's lots of people in this situation that they don't need to feel embarrassed by it. Um, and also highlighting that they should speak to their lender at the, the earliest opportunity. It's also worth saying as well that, you know, although we've spoken a lot about that sort of savings cushion that some people have during the COVID crisis, you know, some people were able to save because they weren't doing stuff. They were still working from home. But we also had a huge number of people on furlough. Maybe they were not getting the full amount of cash and, you know, they had run up debt already. So particularly tricky situation for, for many people. But with that sort of cushion um, that some people 
have been able to amass. Of course, they weren't able to take holidays. It does mean that quite a lot of people are really hoping for summer holidays of their dreams, not of their nightmares. And we've had so many cancellations from uh, British Airlines, um, British Airways, EasyJet, particularly affected. And we do know now that we're expecting even more cancellations to come. And that is because plane refuelers have voted to go on strike. Um, Around 50 staff at Heathrow Airport who fuel planes will strike for 72 hours. That's from five o'clock on July the 21st. You know, and this is on top, as I say, of the thousands of flights which have already been cancelled for July because airlines have been under pressure to make sure that they announce any changes to their schedule ahead of time so that we don't have the same sort of last minute cancellations, people at the airport not knowing what on earth is going on. But we've also got a situation where on Friday this week, There is a deadline which was imposed by the Department for Transport. It's an amnesty which basically gives airlines a a window so that they can hand back slots for the summer season that they're not confident that they will be able to operate. Now, normally, if they can't use them, then they risk losing them. But in this case, um, they will be able to to keep them and, and cancel flights. And it's not just... British airlines that, that are struggling. We've also had um, news in the last couple of days that SAS, the Scandinavian airline, has been pushed into bankruptcy. It's filed Chapter 11 because it, it was the only real option to allow it to continue trading while it tries to push ahead with a restructuring plan. Now, all that came to a head. I was saying that we're expecting this strike by um, refuelers at Heathrow. Well, pilots are striking, um, uh, which is affecting the Scandinavian airline at the moment. And they are really struggling. They've, they've been hit more than a lot of airlines because of the closure of Russian airspace. And they now need more money to try and basically keep themselves afloat. And supermarkets have also come out with some various warnings this week about how the rising cost of food is impacting their sales. So Sainsbury's was one of the ones to say that more customers are opting for own brand food in order to cut their food bills. But how does that affect sales, Danny? Yeah, Sainsbury says that their sales fell by 4% in the 16 weeks to the 25th of June. Now, that is compared with last year. And yes, those figures from last year were slightly inflated because lockdowns pushed up sales. But Simon Roberts, the CEO, was saying that the pressure on household budgets is set to increase over the rest of the year and said that Sainsbury's was doing everything that they can to keep prices low. They're investing £500 million into trying to keep those prices low. They're they're sort of taking the fight really to the discounters and figures from Kantar show that only the discounters Aldi and Lidl have seen sales increase in recent months. Between them, they now account for a bigger share of the market than Sainsbury's. And we're seeing, uh, he's saying, that customers are switching to own brand products. They're cutting back on non-essentials as prices rise more quickly. And 
Keeping prices down is something that has pushed Tesco into a row with two great big manufacturers, Heinz and Mars. So uh, the UK's biggest supermarket chain has been um, having a disagreement with Heinz over uh, revised buying terms for beans, soups and ketchup. So those were not available in stores. They were saying, look, you know, we're not going to pay more because we, we don't want to pass any more pain onto our customers. And now they've reached a similar impasse with Mars Pet Care. Now, that's a privately owned producer of, you know, brands like Whiskers and Dreamies and Pedigree and Caesars. So, you know, huge names. And it means that gaps are beginning to appear on shelves. Now, Mars Pet Care said that it couldn't comment on individual relationships or, or situations, but did say that the pet food industry, like many op- others, is operating in a volatile context. You know, all of these companies are having to deal with inflation. If you just think about the packaging that you get in your pet care. So I've just opened some uh, cat food for, for the cat who was uh, annoying me trying to get in on this particular podcast. But it's got a cardboard box. It's got those foil things. And then, of course, you know, just making it and and transporting it. So it is causing sort of a a real difficult relationship between people like supermarkets who are selling the products and people, obviously, who are making the products. Now, while we're talking food, it is not all bad news, Laura, because there have been a a real a surge in shares this morning of Just Eat. Now, Just Eat has been really struggling. It's it's a, a massive um, meal delivery business, and its shares have fallen 70% this year, and shareholders have been really pushing for it to find a partner for its US meal delivery business, Grubhub, or sell it. Well, the good news is it has now found a partner. Amazon has agreed to take a 2% stake in uh, Grubhub, and it will offer its prime members access to the service for a year. And so finally, for the market segment, we've talked a bit before about the US's plan to relax some of the trade tariffs against China. How's progress with that going, Danny? There has been some progress this week, some real progress this week. So we had US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and China's Vice Premier having a chat this week to talk about whether or not those Trump era tariffs could be cut to ease inflation and boost growth. Remember, hundreds of millions of pounds worth of goods have now got huge tariffs on it because President Trump was effectively trying to rebalance things, saying that um, the United States was buying far more goods from China than China was buying from the United States. Also, trying to, you know, create a situation where some US manufacturers might bring manufacturing back to the United States and create jobs. But what it has done is it's just increased the price of things. And there have been a number of uh, sums being kicked about by the Biden administration, suggesting that if tariffs are cut, it could equate to effectively a cut of um, 1% in terms of inflation, or someone else was saying that around sort of £800 a year for the average family. So that's, that's a big amount of money which potentially could be able to go back into consumers' pockets when they're feeling the squeeze because US inflation is currently 8.6%. Also, for China, you know, they've 
really been struggling to reach their growth targets. And there's an estimation that growth has been hit by about 0.5% of GDP because of these tariffs. There is a lot of speculation that maybe as soon as the end of this week, some of those tariffs might be lifted. Now, there's some more big news in the financial world, and I don't think anyone could avoid what has been going on in the news over the last 24 hours. I certainly watched it last night with a bowl of popcorn because it did feel like some kind of Westminster soap. We've got a new chancellor. So what does that mean for us, Laura? So it's probably also worth caveating that we've got a new chancellor for now. Everything is moving so quickly that I fear by the time people are listening to this, we'll have gone through six more chancellors and maybe even have a whole new government. But for now, as we're recording it, Rishi Sunak has stood down and Nadim Zahawi has taken the dubious honour of being Boris Johnson's third chancellor in three years. Um, And obviously, top of his to-do list is the massive task of solving the current cost of living crisis soaring inflation and slowing growth in the UK. So just a small task for him to complete there. He's already come out initially in some interviews and said that he wants to control inflation, cut taxes and restart growth, all of which seem to be slightly competing uh, metrics there. So it's going to be interesting to see what will happen. We've got an economic update next week. This is a bit unusual. It's not like a budget or an autumn statement or a spring statement that we've seen previously. It's something that the government has decided to do outside of that structure and actually was one of the reasons cited in Rishi Sunak's um, resignation letter as a source of friction between him and Prime Minister Boris Johnson about what exactly was going to be announced next week and the direction the government would take. So that's quite a tricky first situation for the new Chancellor to navigate is what exactly will be said in that economic update and whether it will be used as a chance to announce some of those tax cuts that he's talked about or whether it will be a more broader brush statement about how the UK is going to navigate the current crisis. Um, But we've looked at some of the areas where the Chancellor could implement some changes if they did decide to do that next week. Um, I'm focusing on that kind of tax cutting agenda, which Rishi Sunak had already announced um, and said that he wanted to be a tax cutting chancellor. And it seems like Mr. Zahawi is following in those footsteps. So obviously, one of the big issues that the chancellor needs to tackle is the rising energy costs. So We've now got estimates putting the next increase in energy in the energy price cap, which comes in October, putting the average bill at £2,900, which is a dramatic increase on where we are at the moment. But it's more than double, far more than double where the average energy bill was at at the start of this year. So that's obviously a big area that he needs to tackle. Now, the government has already announced an energy bill rebate of £400 for everyone in the UK. There's some thought that they'd left some money on the table for that and that if the October increase or the subsequent uh, January price cap change was bigger than some had imagined, they'd left some money um, in the kitty 
to be able to be distributed and to increase that £400 energy rebate scheme. Um, Another suggestion that's been put forward by Labour, actually, but I mean, the current Tory government does have um, previous with taking Labour's plans, repackaging them, renaming them and passing them out as their own, like they did with the windfall tax on energy companies. Um, One of Labour's suggestions is to slash the VAT due on energy bills. So VAT is charged at 5% on energy bills. So clearly, as energy bills go up, that 5% gets larger. Um, And so at the level that energy bills will be at in October, cutting that VAT from 5% to zero would equate to about £140 a year saving for households. Um, Obviously, that costs the government in lost tax receipts. Um, A criticism of that might be that it's not very targeted at those that need it the most, but nor is the existing £400 energy rebate that the government's offered or the increase in the winter fuel allowance, which is another part of its kind of cost of living support measures, which goes to all pensioners regardless of their income. Um, So that could be an area that we see him take action on. Um, Another area could be on cutting basic rate income tax. So Rishi Sunak has already announced plans to do this and to cut the basic rate of income tax from 20% down to 19% but his plans were to do it from 2024. Uh, The new chancellor could decide to bring that move forward um, and bring it in from April next year, so bring it forward by a year. The economic impact of that is fairly significant. Um, However, the impact for individuals is not that great, and actually it kind of benefits higher earners more than it does the lowest earners. Uh, what would have a bigger impact is unfreezing income tax bans. So at the moment, what we've got is the rates at which you go into the either start paying tax or go into the next tax bracket have been frozen by the government until uh, 2026. Um, and that has a big impact, particularly considering we're in such a high inflation time, which means that those bans for different income tax rates would have jumped quite significantly if they've been increased with inflation. So what we end up with is people paying a lot more tax as a result uh, because more of their earnings is taxed at a higher rate. So one option could be to unfreeze those income tax bans. That's been a kind of big government announcement that they'd be frozen. Um, So I think it's perhaps unlikely that they will announce that, but it will be, I think it's probably more likely that they will bring forward that 19% um, basic rate tax rate, but we will have to see. And as you say, I mean, if if this happens, if Rishi Sunak's plans were sort of torn up and the idea was then slashing taxes rather than raising them, which, of course, has been, we understand, a sort of issue of contention between the former chancellor and the prime minister, it would mean that Mr Zahawi would have to table an emergency budget. And at that time, you know, they would then need to be approved in a finance bill and that would need to be passed by Parliament. Exactly. So it's not as easy as just announcing these things um, other than announcing additional cost of living support measures, which um, can kind of circumvent that system and have done so far. Um, Or announcing things like um, the fuel duty cut, didn't have to go through that same process. Um, 
One area that the Chancellor has flagged is that he wants to make the UK uh, a bigger player on the global stage and he wants to help businesses to grow in order to grow the UK economy. Uh, So that means that there's been a lot of talk about whether he's going to ditch the planned increase in corporation tax. So what's already been announced is that from next April, corporation tax is going to rise from 19% up to the highest rate of 25%. Um, However, it's also going to be working on a sliding scale depending on the profits that a company has just to make the system even more complicated for people to navigate. (laughs) But it means that there will be a top rate of 25% charge for those businesses that have profits of £250,000 or more. So that's already been approved by the government and is due to come in from April next year. But the new chancellor could decide to scrap that planned increase and just keep uh, corporation tax at 19%. And it's something in the kind of few interviews that he's been out and about doing today, he's highlighted and said that that corporation tax rate is something that's quite comparable across different countries. And so it's a good area to focus on if we're looking to improve our competitiveness for businesses on a global scale. I think... um, my two pence worth for what it's worth is that if a new chancellor came in and all they announced was a tax cut for businesses or not even a tax cut but scrapping a planned tax rise for businesses and nothing for consumers I think that would be met with (laughs) it wouldn't go down well would it (laughs) that is yes that but with more energy and gumps behind it but yes <laughs> and I suppose I mean, it, it doesn't matter how radical any of the conversations are or the fact that we're talking about what might happen the likelihood of any of this actually coming to pass is is quite low and I think that probably explains why markets really don't seem to have, have changed their minds in the last 24 hours Um, It is time for our fund manager interview of the week. Hundreds of thousands of investors hold shares in banking stocks for their generous dividends. Names like Lloyd's and NatWest, popular holdings in people's pensions. Laura Foll is one of the fund managers who likes this space with bank shares held across three investment trusts, which she helps to run, being Lowland Henderson Opportunities Trust and Law Devonshire. Dan Coatsworth spoke to Laura about why she likes this sector. So, Laura, there is a theory that banks' earnings go up in a rising interest rate environment because they can charge more for lending. Is it that simple? And if so, why aren't shares in the banking sector racing ahead? It's a very good question. In in theory, it is that simple. The reason being... So, for example, at the moment, there's there's a huge amount of deposits in the banking system, almost too many deposits. And that means that the banks can pass on interest rate rises to to me and you as the deposit holder relatively slowly. And yet, if you're out there looking for a mortgage, you know, it won't won't have passed anyone by that mortgage rates have gone up pretty steeply over the last couple of months, you know, year to date. So that, that margin that they make between what they pay me and you as the deposit holder and someone getting a mortgage is getting bigger and that means the bank margin should should in theory be be going up and that should be good for bank earnings and that has historically been how it's worked now what could disrupt that what could disrupt that is 
one of the big banks breaking out and suddenly offering people much more attractive deposit rates. So people start to shop around and maybe uh, Lloyds loses at the expense of NetWest, vice versa. And you would lose some of that margin if you started to see deposit rates suddenly becoming much more competitive. And that doesn't seem to be happening at the moment. It seems like most banks are quite comfortable not passing on a huge amount of the interest rate rises to their deposit holders because they have all got, in effect, excess liquidity coming out of COVID. So they've decided not, not to pass on a huge amount. Now, I think the reason, you know, it's a good question, why aren't bank shares doing better? I think a big part of that, and, and this is really a trend that we've seen since the, the war, so since Russia invaded Ukraine, is that there is this fear about us going into, not just in the UK, but globally, into a recession. And historically, banks have not been the sector that you want to own in a recession because you start to get fears about bad debts. In other words, have banks lent to people towards the end of the cycle that they shouldn't have lent to? Um, so that, I think, is what is holding back some of these bank shares from performing better. So even though interest rate rises have been, if anything, faster than people thought, it's not quite filtering through to the bank shares in the way that you'd normally expect, because it's a very unusual environment where people are saying, yes, rates are going up, but we might also be about to head into a recession. That's very unusual in terms of the combination, but I think that's what's holding them back at the moment. So if we do get a recession, um, perhaps um, you know the market's looking to assess what are the, sort of the key risks to bank earnings. So obviously you say one is that customers can't repay their debts, but... I presume another would be that banks um, sort of lend less money out, so the profits might be a bit less than thought. Is is the uh, you know is the market sort of saying um, if we focus on the fact that on that customers can't repay their debts? I presume these banks are still in quite a good financial situation to be able to sort of stomach some bad debts because obviously they put money aside, didn't they, during COVID. Um, They've sort of released some of those reserves, but they, do they still have some of that sort of tucked away to sort of fall that back as a cushion? Yeah, you're right. They, they do. It's kind of a strange accident of history in a way that this has come so soon after COVID. So you're right in that banks took what, what are called these management overlays over their provisions. So they took not only a provision that often assumed uh, you know, 10, 11% unemployment, clearly that didn't happen, but they often put a management overlay even above that in effect saying excess caution you know stick stick a lot of provisions in you know assume the worst economically um clearly that that didn't happen in the end given the sheer scale of government intervention now some of that's been unwound some of those provisions have been unwound but not all of them um and that is it is genuinely just an accident of history that they hadn't got around to unwinding all of those provisions before this crisis effectively hit um so they have got you can think of it as almost a buffer on their capital positions because of what's happened. I think the other, uh, it's always dangerous to say kind of this, this time is, is different, but I think the other thing that is, is genuinely, in my view, different this time around is that after the financial crisis, there were a lot of restrictions put on bank lending. So if you take mortgages as an example, you know, all sorts of stress tests that, and, and sort of hurdles that people had to jump through to get a mortgage, you know, limits on ratios to earnings, um, stress testing, interest rates that are far, far above even the levels that we've got now. So you didn't see banks lend in that 
more aggressive way that you often get towards the end of the cycle because there were these restrictions that have been put in place around lending. And that's on the, on the mortgage side, but on the corporate side, um, obviously another sort of strange quirk or unusual quirk of COVID is that a lot of the corporate lending, the government actually provided the backstop for that lending. So the risk isn't on the, the corporate lender's balance sheet, it's on the, the government's balance sheet. Very, very unusual situation. Um, so I think, you know, this particular cycle, and, and we will have to wait and see whether this is proved correct. It won't be proved correct over one quarter or six months. It will be proved correct over 18 months or, you know, several years in reality is that I think the bad debt pattern may be different in this cycle to what it's been in the past for all those reasons around, um, you know, restrictions on lending, the, the quirks of COVID. We'll have to see if that's proved right. But that is... Um, that's why I think this time might prove different. So I guess lots of people own banking shares because they they like the income. They've always been known as sort of quite generous dividend payers. Um, so I mean, at the moment, if they're if they're not if sort of the the, sort of the sectors being held back by recession fears, um, equally, it does seem like they're in a strong enough position to still be able to pay these generous dividends. I mean, obviously. You've got various banking stocks in your portfolios. Um, do you feel comfortable about the current level of dividends, or do you think there is a risk to that it might be sort of pared back a bit if times get tougher? I, I do feel comfortable with the dividends that they're paying. I think so. All of the, and I'm talking more about the UK domestic large cap banks here. So I think the likes of uh, Lloyd, NatWest, Barclays. You know, all of them are forecast to have an above 4% dividend yield over the next year, so above the market level, which, um, you know, a 4% yield on the UK market is a lot higher than you get on lots of other markets anyway, so you can say that that's a, that's a decent yield that they're paying. I think, you know, there's always, after COVID, so what happened during COVID is, the, you know, the, the regulator, the FCA, came out and suspended dividends for the banking sector, um, was very little warning, and I think, you know, that is still in the very recent past, um, so I think as a bank shareholder, it's only natural that you have a bit of a question in the back of your mind about whether that might happen again. Um, now, I think the regulator has been quite, quite forceful in saying that that was a genuine one off. You know, this was, that was a scenario where UK GDP fell 10% in a year, obviously a very, very exceptional circumstance. Um, but I think it's only natural given that that was so recently to have um, just a bit of a question in the back of my mind about whether that might happen. I think if I was on the board of one of the banks, you know, absent the regulator doing anything, I'd be much more likely to scale back some of my share buybacks than I would cut the ordinary dividend. Um, I, that's just, especially um, if you think about ordinaries, ordinary dividends versus buybacks, that's how management teams and boards tend to think. They tend to think of the buyback as very flexible and ordinary dividend is something that's only cut in a um, real kind of downside scenario. So I would feel more comfortable, you know, absent the FCA doing something that ordinary dividends can be held or, or grow from these levels. So I guess if you if you own banking shares, um, do you have a sort of a view on what might be the catalyst to actually get the sort of the sector moving upwards in terms of prices? Is it sort of realisation that recession either doesn't happen or if it does it's, it's quite a mild one um because i guess there has to be sort of a turning point for the market to decide okay these are cheap they pay good income actually we want to be buying them now 
I think a catalyst is always the hardest thing to say, isn't it? Um, as James, the guy I work with, always says, you only know the catalyst once it's really happened. Um, I think, you know, if, if we are to be right on this, as I said, I don't think it's going to be a case that the Q2 earnings, the second quarter earnings come out and everyone goes, right, yeah, fine, let's all buy banks. I think it will be a case of we need to see how this, whether it's a recession, whether it's just sort of trundling along with growth around zero, I think lots of people will wait to see just how strong or weak the economy is before they make any decision about the sector because historically it is perceived as um, having the most economic sensitivity of really all sectors you know given the inherent leverage of a bank's you know profit and loss structure um, I think people will, will wait and see and sort of sit on the sidelines for the most part and see how the economy plays out over the next you know six months a year and I think you know in all likelihood people need to feel more confident about if, if we're talking about the UK domestic banks people probably need to feel more confident about the state of the UK economy um, for there to be any real return of, of confidence in the sector. Perfect Laura Fall thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So I also, before we go, wanted to flag that lots of people who listen to this podcast might also enjoy the Money Matters podcast that Danny and I also host. So it looks at lots of different financial topics to help people engage with their finances more and ultimately to take that first step into investing. So for it's for kind of more newbie investors. Our recent episodes include an interview with the chief executive of SmartWorks, which is a charity doing great things to get people back into work. So you can find that podcast um, wherever you found this one, if you just search for Money Matters, or if you go into Google and search for AJ Bell Money Matters, that'll take you to the homepage where there's lots of articles, uh, previous podcast episodes, and you can sign up to the newsletter there as well. And Laura, you were talking about debt earlier, and there is one on there about uh, the cost of living crisis, which has some great advice for how to tackle some of the issues. Um, That's everything for this week. Do get in touch if you have any questions or suggestions of future guests. You can email us at podcast at ajbell.co.uk or find us on social media. And we'll see you next week when we have an interview with Ruffa Investment Trust, which was actually a request from one of our listeners. We'll see you then. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.